How many of you are aware of that great cinema classic, uh, cinematic classic, The Princess Bride? Any lovers of The Princess Bride here? Uh, it's, it's one of our family's favourites, and uh, one of my favourite scenes is when the, uh, the impressive clergyman and the evil Prince Humperdick and beautiful Buttercup uh, get together, and he begins with those famous words. Marriage. Marriage is what brings us together today. <laughs> Marriage, that blessed arrangement, that dream within a dream, and love, true love, will follow you forever. When it comes to weddings, really, there's no more chosen passage, really, is there, than 1 Corinthians 11. Just about every couple who... what So, 13. Just about every couple... Yeah, 1 Corinthians 11. That'd be good to have at a marriage. Mm, yeah. There is, uh, there is no real passage that couples prefer to have read at their wedding than this one. I was uh, sitting down with a couple the other day and they wanted 1 Corinthians 13, but like most couples, they didn't want the whole chapter. Uh, they didn't want the bits about clanging cymbals and... They didn't want the bits about gifts being passed away and any mention of children was strictly forbidden, which means that all they're left with is sort of verses 4 to 7, which is such a shame because when we just have those few verses, we rip the passage out of its context, we dislocate it from its context, and really all we're left with are a bunch of sugary thoughts that so many people long to have adorning their wedding. And the gravity of the passage, the grunt, the depth of the love that is spoken of, I think gets lost. This morning, what I want us to do is I want us to rescue 1 Corinthians 13 from the wedding planners. I want you to think very carefully, those of you who are single or engaged, about whether you really want to have a passage like this read at your wedding or whether there isn't something better. I want us to discover the context. I want us to discover the gravity. I want us to discover the depth of the love that Paul speaks about. How about we pray as we begin? Our gracious God and our loving Heavenly Father, we want to pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning. And we ask that your spirit would open our eyes and unstop our ears and soften our hearts, our hearts particularly, Father, so that we might understand the depth of your love for us in Christ and have keen insights into how we can love one another with the gifts you've given us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I hope you've already begun to see, uh, the, the Corinthians really did think of themselves as remarkably spiritual And they had been given some incredible gifts by God. They could prophesy, they could speak in tongues, that is in the language of angels. They were given the ability to know things that normal human beings could not know. And they, as far as we could understand, they just loved it. They loved the kudos that came with it, the status, the recognition, the awe that others held them in. And when the Apostle Paul wrote to them, He dedicated more space to the issue of gifts and the work of the Spirit than just about any other pastoral issue that he faced with any other church. I hope, as we've seen already, 
that uh, we've seen in chapter 12 and we'll see in chapter 14 tomorrow, that chapter 13 really does fit between those two chapters. We need to recognise that chapter 13 is actually the heart and the core of what drives what he said in chapter 12 and what he'll go on to say in chapter 14. Have a look at the last phrase in the last verse of chapter 12 and see the way that it connects gifts with what's coming and it'll also push us into chapter 14. It's a phrase that links gifts to serving others to every Christian being an essential part and there being no reason for jealousy. It takes us from talk about gifts to understanding what is more important than the gifts that we've been given. Look at verse 31. Now I will show you still a more excellent way. Yes, I've spoken to you about gifts, but there's something better. There is something more excellent indeed. And he shows that, Corinthians, that more excellent way. And as he does it, he really does pull the rug out from underneath their thinking about their own prowess. He's going to, if you like, put them on their spiritual bottoms with a bit of a thud. And as he shows them, he says this, verse 1. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm what? A noisy gong or a clanging cymbal? Corinthians, proud of their ability to speak in the tongues of angels. But what does Paul do? What does he say about the noise that comes out of their mouths? Without love, all that comes out of their mouths is the sound of a clanging cymbal or a noisy gong, which is actually a really unpleasant sound. At church uh, at Matthias Ryan, we have a drum kit up the front, and during morning tea, the little ones get attracted to the drum kit. It's like a magnet. And they find drumsticks and they prove to the world that they have no musical talent. They just hit anything that moves. And, and, and what do the parents do? Hopefully, they come and drag their little treasures away uh, and take the drumsticks away from them because silence is better than the cacophony that those kids come up with. It would be beneficial if actually no one heard their talent. Can you see what Paul is saying to the Corinthians? Silence would be better than an unloving use of your gift. Because if you use your gift without love, it is just an unpleasant noise and the body would be better off if nobody heard it. Just put yourself in the Corinthian shoes for a moment, in, in the shoes of a tongue-speaking Corinthian for a moment. How would you feel if you heard that? How would you feel if you'd heard that the gift that you admire the most is being relegated to being called an unpleasant noise? How would you feel if the gift that you believed was the sound of angels speaking, the gift that you believed marked you out as spiritually superior, was being likened to a toneless intrusion? Rug pulled, bottom landed. Paul has put them in their place. But notice the way that he does it. He doesn't go, you, 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 you. He says, but if I speak without love, he talks of himself. And at the side, it's probably just as true for you as it would be if it was for me. 
He continues in verse 2. He says, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. I may be able to tell the future. I may have extraordinary insights into the lives of others. I may understand spiritual mysteries. I may be able to do incredible miracles, move mountains. I may even have my own Facebook page. I may have a YouTube channel dedicated to my spiritual pursuits. I may even have a ministry named after me. Everybody else might think that I am incredible. But without love, I'm zilch. Nothing, naught, zero. The number of hits on my Facebook page adds up to zero. I might think that I'm something because of what I can do. But the truth is, I'm absolutely nothing. In fact, verse 3, if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. If I sacrifice everything. Others may marvel at my generosity, at my sacrifice, but if I'm not driven by love, I gain nothing. No kudos, no reward, no recognition from God. There is absolutely nothing in it for me and my sacrifices are a complete and utter waste which again has got to be incredibly sobering to any member of the Corinthian congregation who may have made a significant sacrifice for the sake of others, but without love. Can you see Paul's point? If you want to know what is important in life, it isn't gifts. It isn't what you can do. It isn't what others think about the incredible things that you can do. It isn't that others marvel at your generosity, your faith, your service, your sacrifice. It's love. Without it, we're nothing. Without it, we count for nothing. Without it, we're worth nothing. Without it, we achieve nothing. We might have it all in the world's eyes, but in God's eyes, in the eyes of those who matters, we're nothing but also in the eyes of fellow believers who understand what matters in God's eyes. Our contributions are nothing. And that's because, verse 8, love never ends, whereas everything else does. And what Paul wants to do is to develop some real long-term thinking in the Corinthian church and get them to jettison their short-term approach. Look at verse 8. He says, love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will pass away. So don't invest in them at the expense of love. Don't think for a moment they'll be there in the long haul. As for tongues, they will cease. So don't worry about them at the expense of love. Don't get hung up if you speak in tongues or if you don't. Don't think you're something if you do and don't think you're nothing if you don't. They are such a short-term phenomenon. How many of you can remember the craze that swept the world called hypercolour T-shirts? <laughs> I rest my case, friends. Hypercolour T-shirts were everywhere in the 80s. How many of you were born? No, don't go there. 
Hypercolor t-shirts were huge. Right? Now they're gone. Nobody has them anymore. You don't even know what they are. You'll make it up. No, 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 no. <laughs> Friends, if I'd invested a lot in hypercolor t-shirts, that would have been incredibly short-term thinking. If we invest everything in tongues, in prophecies, in, 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 without love, right? Very short-term thinking. As for knowledge, we're told, it'll pass away. Whether it's the gift of the utterance or knowledge or the utterance of wisdom, it just won't be there. Whereas love never ends. Think about it, Corinthians. Why invest all your energies? Why pursue all these gifts that simply won't last? Especially when you remember not only that they won't last, but they're incredibly limited. Look at verse 9. He says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. In other words, your gift of knowledge, as good as it is, is only partial. In other words, you know, yes, but there is so much that you don't know. Don't forget that. And your prophecies, yes, they reveal things that are unknown. Yes, they give you insight into the lives of others. But no matter how much they reveal, they will only be a very small part of a much, much, much bigger picture. When the perfect comes, then this partial way of knowing will be gone, done, finished. So Corinthians... So Smackians think long term. Remember how things changed when you went from being a child to an adult, he says, verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And Corinthians, so should you. When Christ returns, everything will change decisively. We'll be mature and we'll give up what we now have, speaking as we now do, thinking as we now do, even prophesying and knowing as we now do. After all, verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then with that clarity of face to face. Now things are more than a little unclear, but then we will see every single detail. Now, he says, I know in part, just a part, but then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. Now we just get a small part of the picture. Then it will be totally clear. Prophecy now may well appear to be brilliant, clear and insightful, but we've got to remember that what looks like it's brilliant, clear and insightful is only at best a small part. The best it'll ever be is seeing in that mirror dimly. And remember, first century mirrors weren't like ours, crystal clear, smooth glass, beautiful whatever it is behind it that reflects the light. 
right? Mirrors back then, the glass wasn't great, right? Whatever reflected it was, you know, looking at a pool of water on, the, on a pond that was still actually gave you a better reflection. Corinthians, get this right. Understand the long term. The gifts and abilities you are so keen on, they have a limited lifespan. And even now, they're severely limited in what they can achieve. They won't last, but there are some things that will. Verse 13. So now, in other words, therefore, faith, hope and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Faith, hope and love, they will be there on the other side of Jesus' return. Which means, Corinthians, that they're immensely more important than the gifts that you're so keen on. Faith, hope and love, they, they put your gifts into a time perspective that you need to put them into. Without love, those gifts are useless. Once Jesus returns, I've said, they'll be redundant. And even now, they're severely limited in what they can achieve. So why not, Corinthians, instead of trying to excel in what you think is spiritual, why not excel in the three things that will abide? Faith, hope and love. And while you're at it, why not remember that even with these three, the greatest of them is love. For God himself is love. God himself is love personified, which makes love, I think, and Paul thinks, the most excellent of ways. We're at point four on the outline. Let's take a step back and have a look at some of those qualities that dominate the marriage service. Notice with me that all the words that Paul uses to describe love are not adjectives, as my Miss, as my year three teacher, Miss Barwick, used to say, they're verbs. What's a verb? A verb is a doing word. Right? You know what that is? A doing word, it's something that you do. It's kind of like that, isn't it? In other words, love is dynamic and active. Love isn't static. It isn't a card that sits on a mantel shelf, a trophy that we admire. Love acts. Love isn't something that is talked about, it's done. Love isn't something that is felt in my heart. This love is something that others experience at my hands. They experience it through all that I do, I say and think. You might have a a, a secret romantic love. You might have an unrequited romantic love. But friends, there is no such thing when it comes to Christian love. Love acts. Love is out there. Look at verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. That's right, isn't it? It's not arrogant or rude. Love is concerned for the other, not itself. It, It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not pushy. It's not irritable or resentful. It isn't easily worked up. It doesn't get out of bed on the wrong side. It doesn't keep score. It doesn't try to get even. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. There there is no joy in sin with love. The only joy is in the truth, and that truth is truth that serves for, verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and and when Paul says all things, he's not saying that love is gullible. Rather, he's saying that love believes the promises of God. And when he says love hopes all things, 
He simply means that love trusts the promises of God, that God will keep them. Which means that love is able to endure all things because love understands, appreciates that God is in control and will always work things together for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, in the small group, you just trawled through the rest of 1 Corinthians, didn't you? On a scale of uh, 0 to 10, 10 being good, 0 being loving, how did they do? And they were right down this end, weren't they? Like right, right, right down this end. Can you see with me, as Paul writes these words, how tragically ironic they are in the light of the first 11 chapters? This isn't, if you like, what the wedding planner wants to hear. These these are words that are cutting. These are a sharp, sharp rebuke. They weren't patient, were they? Chapter 11, verse 21 reminds us that they wouldn't even wait for each other at a meal. They weren't kind. They didn't share even the the food that they had. So others went hungry. Others got drunk. They envied each other's gifts. They boasted of their spiritual prowess and put Paul, an apostle, down in chapter 4. They were arrogant. They thought of themselves as spiritual kings. They thought they were on that higher spiritual plane when they were actually spiritual pygmies. They were rude. Their their behaviour towards one another was just awful. Chapter 11 again says, Do you despise each other? So they seemed to delight in humiliating each other. They insisted on their own way. They, They took each other to court. Instead of sorting out their differences... They so wanted to get their own way that they were prepared to take each other to court to force each other to give them what was rightfully theirs. Irritable and resentful? Absolutely. They kept score. Instead of being ashamed of sin, verse chapter 5, they rejoiced in it that that fellow was sleeping with his father's wife. They didn't love the truth. They loved themselves. They loved their gifts. They loved what they could get out of them for their own purposes. The Corinthians' gifts were very conspicuous. Their failure to love was even more conspicuous. Friends, these words, I think, in verses 4 to 7, are some of the most cuttingly ironic words ever written. With every syllable, Paul is jabbing his finger again into that breastbone of the Corinthians and pushing them backwards one step at a time and putting them in their place. Love never ends. It's not even started to appear among you as a congregation. Love never ends, but there is little evidence of it in your life. When will you start to love? When will you begin? I'm not sure how the Corinthians responded to these words. We don't have the letter that came between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And by the time you get to 2 Corinthians, they don't seem to be having a love feast with Paul. It seems to be Biffo again. I'd love to imagine that this chapter was read out in their church that first Sunday. I'd love to imagine that around the room there was just a quiet hush as heads turned towards the floor and every heart 
questioned if love never ends, have I got it? And if I haven't, how do I start? How do I turn things around? How how can things be different? Where, where does love start if it never ends? A few years ago, there was this ad on Australian television designed to scare the living daylights of any, out of anybody who's a smoker. It was in an operating theatre. Uh, well, it wasn't actually an operating theatre. It was the mortuary. And uh, the, the doctor who had just performed an autopsy on a smoker removed a blood vessel about this long and it was about this thick, so it was a big one, uh, and it was from near the heart. And he got out uh, uh, the, the, the blood vessel and on a, on a tray he ran his finger down the blood vessel and all this white, ooey, greasy, creamy gunk, that's a technical term, uh, came out. <laughs> and... And he said, this is what comes out of the veins of smokers. All right? Just awful. It was enough to put any thinking person off smoking for life. Along with the ad, there were these posters that went up all over the place. And at the bottom of the poster were these words, smoking narrows your arteries, causing them to become clogged and can lead to heart attack, stroke, peripheral vascular disease, gangrene of the feet... And blokes, impotence. Hmm. When Paul's words were read out in Corinth that first Sunday, I'd hope that it would have that sort of effect. As each description of love was read out, as more gunk from the Corinthian vascular system was laid out on the table for all to see, I'd hope they'd see that their hearts were stuffed. That, again, is a technical term. (laughs) Stuffed by sin. That is, as every cigarette, we're told, is doing us damage, so every time we sin, we damage our real hearts again and again. The Corinthian church, I think, needed far more than a quadruple bypass. They needed the whole gunk in their system cleaned out. They needed a new heart so that they could actually love. The only way that we can love is if we allow the spirit of the living God to transform our hearts. The only way that love can dominate our gifts is if the spirit himself dominates our life. It's not by keeping a few rules. It's not by trying to try a little bit harder to be nice to one another. It's not by cutting down on a few sins. We can't do the equivalent of a a nicotine patch and hope that it'll change things. What we need is a complete vascular overhaul. And that is what the spiritual person has been given. Come back with me to Ezekiel 36. It's on page of your Bible. Go to the middle and turn a bit towards the back. If you hit Isaiah, keep going towards the, towards the back. Ezekiel 36. Remember what God promised he would do when he gave us his spirit. Total vascular overhaul. Verse 25, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. The gunk of sin will be gone. I'll high pressure blast out your vascular system. Not only that, verse 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. 
I will remove the heart that has become so calloused with sin. I will give you a heart of flesh, one that beats in time with mine. And I'll put my spirit within you. I'll transform you. And I'll cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Not, not because you have to, not to get into my good books, but because you want to love like I love. Because you want to care as I care. Friends, the most important work that the Spirit of God does within us is that work. The most important work that the Spirit does within us is that heart-transforming work, not so much the work along with the Father and the Son to give us gifts. His primary work is to replace our heart of stone with soft hearts, with hearts that beat in unison with the heart of the Father. What is the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5? Love, joy, peace, patience, etc. We'll come to that in a moment. With our hearts that take after the heart of the Father and the Son, we are finally transformed. The fruit of the Spirit, what the Spirit produces in us when he changes our hearts is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Can you see what we've done? If we understand that, We've actually rescued 1 Corinthians 13 from the marriage planets. Can you see what Paul is saying all the way through this chapter? Without love, we're just clanging cymbals, noisy gongs. We make noise, but we're nothing. Without God's love pumping through our veins, without that heart transplant that the Spirit makes possible and then generates, we'll never be anything more than nothing. No matter how spectacular the lives we live are, no matter how many lives we save, no matter how many people we care for, or how different our accomplishments are to others, without a new heart, we'll never be able to achieve anything. Because love never ends. And love is the ultimate fruit of the Spirit's work in our lives. So friends, how can we ensure that our hearts pump in time with our Heavenly Father? How can we ensure that the Spirit keeps transforming our hearts? I reckon the first and foremost thing we've got to do is allow the Spirit to keep our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus. And when I say firmly fixed, we need to allow the Spirit, as we read God's Word and we explore what Jesus is like, we need to keep looking at Jesus and allowing the Spirit to help us to understand the richness of who he is and what he's achieved. We need to keep remembering Jesus. We need to keep studying Jesus. We need to keep remembering that there is no one who was ever more gifted, no one who ever gave more of themselves, no one whose love was ever seen as more costly, no one whose love ever achieved more for others. When we look at Jesus when we remember that we are disciples of Jesus, when we keep in step with the Spirit and follow Jesus, and as the Spirit opens our eyes to understand Jesus, he transforms our hearts to follow him. As I said, the Scripture's call is for us to keep in step with the Spirit. And the Spirit will always take us to Jesus and always transform us to be like him. He'll allow us to plant our feet where Jesus puts his Now, one of the ways that we can do that is by actually stopping and thinking about love more deeply, dissecting it, walking around in it, 
and then making some decisions about how we're going to do things differently. So let's do that with some of the characteristics that Paul has mentioned. Let's just take out a couple of them and have a look. The rest of them I want you to talk about over lunch. When Paul reminds us that love is patient and kind, what does that actually look like when you're using your gifts? Think about it for a moment. Take patient and kind out, put it on the floor and walk around it and have a bit of a look at it and go, if I'm patient and kind, what will that actually look like? How do you learn patience? The only way to learn patience is by living with frustration. Think about it. And you only learn patience by living with frustration. When you're exercising your gifts, what frustrates you? If you're like me, it's when other people get in the way of me exercising my gift. If I get frustrated with somebody getting in the way of me exercising my gifts, I can start losing my temper. I can start becoming more focused on the execution of the exercise of my gift rather than using my gift to build others. If I'm going to be patient... I'll need to be gentle with those who are the source of my frustration. Not gently move them out of the way so that I can keep going with what I want, but be gentle with them, kind with them, gracious with them. Not allow my frustration to creep in and allow my temper to rise, but ask myself, what's actually going on at this point? How do I use this situation and these gifts with these people to build them in Christ rather than to run everything through my agenda. We get frustrated when our goals aren't met. When our goal is to love and serve others, when we've got Jesus firmly fixed in our sights, let me tell you, it's much easier to be patient and kind. Walk around for a moment, love doesn't envy or boast. Let's just have a look at it for a minute. What will it mean if love doesn't envy or boast? I reckon it'll mean that love will delight in the gifts that others have. Which means that love is going to create space for others to use their gifts and for their gifts to benefit others. It'll also mean on the other side of that that love won't parade its gifts before others. It'll seek to honour those whose gifts are being used rather than seeking honour for themselves. It'll actually promote others and delight that others are seen and it'll quickly move itself into the background. Now some of you have gifts that constantly push you into the public eye. And it's easy when you've got those kind of gifts to allow the limelight to puff you up, to allow the praise of others to push out your chest and think that, you know, you've done something. But let's walk around love a little bit more. When we remember that our gifts are not about us but about others, not about who we are but they tell us about the giver, those who love, allow rather love to drive their gifts will point that praise back to God. 
They won't love the limelight. They'll love the one who has given them a gift and allowed them to build and encourage another. They won't love the limelight. They'll pour the honour back to their heavenly father who made it all possible. They won't bask in the limelight. They won't court the compliments. They won't pursue the opportunities to be noticed. They will see themselves as just a servant, being faithful with the things that have been placed in their hands for the good of others. What about love doesn't insist on its own way? Just walk around that one for a moment. It's not irritable or resentful. I don't know about smack, but there are members of congregations that I've been a part of in the past. I'm not saying anything about my current congregation. There are some members in congregations who can get a little bit grumpy, get a little bit cranky. We don't like the way that things are being done. They withdraw a little. They still come, but they withdraw emotionally until they see the changes made that they really want. They cut themselves partially off from the body until things change. At times they don't like the direction that the leadership in a church is taking. Not that the leadership is moved away from the gospel. It's never about a gospel issue. It's usually about some style thing rather than anything to do with substance. It's easy, and you'll notice it in yourself every now and again, that you can become passively aggressive. Frankly, it's sin. It has no part in the life of the body and it's not loving. We're to support our leaders, we're to follow our leaders, we're to obey our leaders. If we don't get our own way and we withdraw, we demonstrate that we do not understand love and the things that we do in that space are simply not loving. We could keep going, but we've done our time. What I want you to do, though, over lunch is keep talking through the list. Pull out something, one of the characteristics of love, and walk around it. What does that actually look like? How could we fail to do that? How could we promote it more fully in the body? Let me tie a few threads together. Friends, love must come first. It outlasts our gifts, and it's what makes the contribution of our gifts something. Love must dominate our gifts. And the way that that happens best is when we use our gifts for the sake of others, which means that people come first. Our gifts are just a way to love and serve others. They're not for ourselves and for our own aggrandizement. Let me pray. Our gracious God and our loving Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the gifts that you've given us, but mostly we want to thank you for the love that you've showered upon us and for the work of your spirit within us, transforming us to love. Father, help us to evaluate our own lives and to see where we use our gifts in such a way that we're not loving and serving others, but merely loving and serving ourselves. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.